ahead and turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Um, it might be tomorrow's reading um, in the daily Bible reading, but that's what we are doing together as we read through the Bible. Um, we're taking time also to consider what Proverbs and the Psalms have to say, uh, besides the Old and the New Testament. And so, whenever it's time to preach... I get to choose between Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, or Proverbs, and usually there's always a fantastic psalm to consider and to, uh, to look at. And so hopefully today you are encouraged uh, by the message of Psalm 91, the message of the entire fourth book of the Psalms, which Psalm 91 is a part of. Um, the book of Psalms is divided up into five different sections, and uh, Psalm 90 through Psalm 106 is the fourth section. The fourth book is what it's called. You'll notice in your Bible um, that there are um, that, it, that it, it breaks them up and it tells you when you've reached the next book. And what's interesting is that Psalms is telling a story, telling the story of the history of Israel without actually giving a lot of historical narrative or any. It's all through poetry and worshipful reflection by those uh, throughout the history of Israel. And by the time you get to book four of Psalms, starting in Psalm 90, the kingdom of Israel has fallen. The kingdom of David is thrown down. Jerusalem is destroyed. And Babylon has taken the Israelites into exile. And the promises of God seem to be wiped out. Everything is over. And book four has an interesting theme, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at Psalm 91, and we're going to try to trace the theme through there, but you're going to see, we're going to take some time and look at a couple of the other psalms surrounding it. And there's a very specific theme that the authors want you to know, want the people of Israel to know, those who are in exile, those who are far from the temple or the tabernacle or the place of worship of God, those who are far from their home, those who are far from everything they knew, they want the people of God to know that God reigns and God is a fortress for his people. So when you're looking at Psalms, you should ask yourself two questions. What do I need to trust? What is the Psalm telling me that's true? And what do I need to obey? What do I need to do about it? Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction to the entire book, lays those two questions out for us to consider. So we're going to consider those things. What do I need to trust despite great hardship, despite ultimate suffering, despite the end of the seeming end of the promises and blessings of God? What do I need to trust in those times? And what do I need to do in those times to move forward. So try to consider, try to think of yourself as an exiled Israelite. The powerful empire of Babylon has come in, destroyed everything you knew, taken you away, and now you're stuck in a completely different culture, in a place where the God that you've served all your life is not worshiped, is not even considered, and there's hostility towards him and your way of life. 
Where you worship, the place you would go, where you would go to meet God, that is no longer available to you anymore. You have no access. So what do you do? What does that kind of a person need to hear from the Lord? So look at verses 1 and 2. And, and it's so, like, it just starts out so powerfully. Sometimes some of the Psalms take a minute and they ramp up. But this one starts out just right away telling exactly what these people need to hear, what the people of God in exile need to hear. He says this, he who dwells, the he is the people in exile, the Israelites who are far from home. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Right off the bat in verses 1, we are invited into the secret place of the Most High. So the secret place, if you have people over to your house, uh, somebody you don't know that well, let's say, maybe somebody you do know well that you wouldn't care, but somebody you don't know that well, let's say you have someone over to your house, there are probably places in your home you don't expect them to go or you expect to invite them into. You probably have a room, maybe it's where you sleep, some room that is intimately important to you, and only people, only people invited into that room are going to be are certain people that you know and you're close to. That's the idea here when it talks about the secret place of the Most High, the most intimate personal room of God that he has. He is inviting his people into there's a parallel here that I assume that an ancient Israelite in exile would hopefully understand. In the tabernacle, in the, in the temple, in the place of worship of the nation of Israel, there was a most intimate and sacred room where God was said to dwell, the Holy of Holies. And unless you met specific requirements laid out by the Lord or by Moses in the law, unless you met specific requirements, you never would ever see that place. You were never invited into that room. This is so powerful because before Jesus has even come and torn that veil down and invited people to be in the secret place of God, God himself says to those in Israel, come to my most holy of holies. Come to my most intimate secret place. Come where my shadow falls, and you are under it. To be under the shadow of someone, you know you have to be very close to them. Shadows don't fall forever. They're not all-inclusive. They take up a certain amount of space. And so that's the poetic image here. God's shadow probably would fall everywhere, right? But the poetic image here is that you are invited to come as close to God as you can possibly get so that when the sun shines, his shadow is falling over you. That's a revolutionary thing for many Israelites who thought they could only ever get so close to God and not any further. But yet, when they are the furthest away from their home, the furthest away from their place of worship, and the furthest away from God's promises, God is saying to them, won't you please come Closer to me. Abide under my shadow. 
The, the word for dwells there, he who dwells means to sit. So come and sit, come and rest. Don't just come and stand or look in the door and, and say, hey, that looks nice, but come and sit and rest in the sacred, secret place of God. And so the psalmist can say, when I do this, I can say he is my refuge and my fortress. I can't think of a safer place to be than that close to God. Right? The rest of um, this book and other places in this psalm, and we sang about it today, and we've heard about it today, that God reigns. And if God is the most high king above all, and he is reigning, and you are right next to him, as close as you could get rubbing shoulders with him, what safer place could you be? And this is all true in light of the fact that the Israelites are far away from their city, far away from their home, far away from their place of worship, far away from all of the things they had to protect them. But they're never far away from God, their Savior. In Psalm 1 and 2, we can answer the question, where can I go in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of exile? You can go to the secret place of the Most High and sit under his shadow. It's um, kind of like a declaration of new residency for these people. They're homeless. They're nationless. They're captives of war. They have nothing to call their own, but God says, you still have me. I have not forgotten. I will not forget what I promised my people. And so it doesn't matter where you are physically. If God, if you worship God, you are with him always in his real estate, in his kingdom. You are always a resident there. And so I want to take a second here and I want to step back because I want to look at the theme of book four of the Psalms um, because I think when we sit that close to God, when we are under his shadow, when we abide in his secret place, we learn several things that are important to understand what we can do to move forward through adversity, through suffering, through exile because God didn't want them to just sit next to him and do nothing. He wanted them to know what they needed to trust, that God was still there, that they were still part of his kingdom, and that he hadn't forgotten them, but he also wanted them to do certain things. But that can be hard. When everything breaks down, that can be hard to think that there's anything else I could do. It doesn't make any sense. Why am I going through this? What can I do next? How could I ever move forward? And so I think that when we take the time to sit under the shadow of God, we start to understand his character more. We start to understand him more. We start to understand his power more. We start to trust in his truth more. And so I want to look at a couple of different psalms here, and we're going to go quick. I, I was making this list, and I realized I could make it forever. Um, and fill pages and pages just from these psalms here in book four. But uh, I, I put a little bit of a limit on it, but if you want to go through and read it, and hopefully you will as you're doing the, the daily Bible reading, you'll go through and read these and start making your own list of what these other psalms teach us 
is true about God. And what if you sit in his most secret place, you will learn is true about God. So just look at Psalm 92. Just flip over. We're going to come back to Psalm 91 and and look at the rest here, but I want to take a survey. Because like I said at the beginning, this book four of, 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 of the book of Psalms has a specific message it's trying to, uh, to share. And you're going to see it here in a few minutes. Psalm 92 verses 8 and 9 say this. But you, Lord, are on high forevermore. For behold, your enemies, O Lord. For behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. In Psalm 92, in verses 8 and 9, we learn that God is above everything. Even the enemies, even his enemies, even my enemies, even my trouble, even my adversity, even my suffering, God is above all. He's on high forevermore. If you're above something, we automatically think that gives power over it. And that's exactly what's going on here. God is above everything we face. And so he has power over it. In Psalm 93, verses 1 and 2, it says this, The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from ever lasting. God reigns not just for a moment, not just for decades, not just for millennia. God reigns forever. And just as you read through Psalms uh, 90 through 106, if you're following along with us in the daily Bible reading, you're going to notice that almost every single one of those Psalms, at least once, and sometimes more than once, has that same sentence, God reigns, or that same phrase, God reigns. Over and over and over again in book four of the Psalms, there is praise given to God because he reigns over all. To reign means that you are continually in charge of your kingdom. You're continually on your throne. And for people, a people who feel like they have no more king, who feel like they have no more throne to go to for help, who feel like they have no more kingdom to live and abide in, The book of Psalms wants them to know that God still reigns no matter what I face. And that shouldn't be cold. That shouldn't be a okay. That should be huge help and encouragement for the servants of that kingdom as they suffer. Uh, look at Psalm 94. Uh, we're not going to go through every single one, I promise, but... Um, Psalm 94, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man whom you instruct, O Lord, and teach out of your law, that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment will return to righteousness, and all the upright in heart will follow it. So God is above all from Psalm 92. He is reigning forever in Psalm 93, and his law... His word is the strength of his people in Psalm 94. It still applies. It still matters, even though the exiled Israelites are in Babylon. Even though there's no one going to come to them on a weekly basis and say, okay, let's gather together and let's praise the Lord. Let's hear from his word. Let's hear what he would have us do. 
There's no one coming to do that anymore. There's no cultural precedent for them. And God says it's still important for you and it still has power and strength for your life. So don't give it up. In Psalm 96, verse 13, it says, this is the second half of the verse, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. I imagine as people were being taken from their homes and being brought to Babylon, it would have been very easy to think that God is absent, that God doesn't care anymore. Where is he? Why isn't he stopping this? And then you get to Babylon and you have to start a new life there and figure out what you're going to do. And you continue to ask, where is the Lord in all of this? And Psalm 96 reminds the people of God that wherever you are, whatever you're feeling about the proximity of the Lord, he is coming to judge the earth and to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. And if you are found in the most holy of holy places, I mean, you can only get there if you have been made righteous by Christ. If you are found there, this is good news for you because he's coming back. He's coming to finish what he started. The darkness will never last forever. In Psalm 100, verse 5, it says this. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. If you're the generation that was exiled into Babylon, you might think, well, this is the end. It's all led to this moment, and now it's over. Everything promised to Abraham, to Jacob, to Joseph, to Isaac, to whoever it has been before, everything God did, <clears throat> that is now finished. But the Lord is everlasting, and he's good, and he's not finished until he's finished. And nothing that gets in the way or seems to get in the way catches him by surprise or throws off his plan or changes anything about what he means to do. I mean, it was no accident that they went into exile anyway. It was by their own doing. And yet God still promises to be good and merciful to his people and his truth will always endure. I mean, that's a mercy in itself to know that the truth of God will not be lost in any generation, no matter how difficult things get. No matter how dark things may be, the truth of God will never, ever be lost completely. So that should give those living in exile hope for the future. Sitting in the shadow of God helps us shift our focus and our understanding and our goals from being ruled by the present adversity to being fueled by the future hope and assurance of God's victory. There are several other things we could find throughout um, book four of the Psalms. We're going to go back to Psalm 91 now. But I wanted you to see some of the things that you and I can learn, that you and I can understand, that you and I can grow to believe more as we sit under the shadow of God, as we make the Lord our refuge and our fortress. It's not just a place of safety, it's a place of growing, it's a place of knowledge, it's a place of understanding, so that when it's time to go back out, then we can honor the Lord with our life, our actions, our thoughts, and that's what we're gonna get into 
Now, the rest of Psalm 91 is it's very interesting. Psalm 91 is almost totally positive. Despite the fact that a terrible tragedy has, um, has befallen the nation of Israel. But it's almost totally positive. There's no lamenting in Psalm 91. And almost none in the entire fourth book of the Psalms. Um, there's, no, there's no sadness to be found almost anywhere. I think there's one psalm that, that does have that. But you'll notice in other books of the Psalms, there's lots of laments. That's what they're called. Lamenting over what's going on in life, over the suffering. Yet Psalm 91 is totally positive in such an interesting way. Look at what it says in, in verse 9 of Psalm 91. So, because you've made the Lord your refuge, even the most high your dwelling place, then here's what's true. This is absolutely true. No evil shall ever befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling, for he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. And then we're going to go back to this other section, starting in verse 3, and you're going to notice that if you are in the shadow of the Almighty, nothing bad Nothing that we deem bad can befall us. But that's what's interesting is because there has just been a huge tragedy in the nation of Israel. So how can this be true? Is this a contradiction within the word of God? You follow the Lord. Consider your own life. Is everything always right? Is everything always comfortable? Is everything always easy? Do you always feel the blessings and riches of God playing out correctly and justly in your life? I mean, we know that's not how life goes. So how can this be true? Well, that's why I think it's interesting that this psalm starts out with saying, please come into the secret place of God. Come and learn from him. We have to understand that what's going on right now is not the final part of the story. It's not the end of what we think should be happening. We can only see the present. Our view of the entire course of history is very, very limited. And even this, even this psalm isn't saying that you will never experience hardship the closer you are to God. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card to love the Lord and serve him. Even this psalm isn't saying that. Because look, look at verse 3. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. That implies that there is a snare to fall into and perilous pestilence to come under. He shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. That implies that there's something you need to be covered from. His truth shall be your shield and buckler, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day. I mean, there's arrows going to be flying. There's terror to be found in the night, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. The implication here is that these things are real, and these things are dangerous. But, what's it say in verse 7? A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward 
of the wicked, meaning you won't partake in the ultimate downfall of evil, which is promised and coming. To be in the secret place of the Most High and to understand that God is operating in a slightly different way than we do, with a slightly different view of the final picture than we have, understanding that he has already won the battle, that he has already defeated the evil, that he has already done these things, he can say to you and I, what you are suffering, what you're going through, what you may experience, the hardships, the adversity, the exile you may feel, if you believe in me, I'm going to make that right. And it's going to be like it had no power over you at all. It's as if no evil will ever befall. There's coming a day when we stand before the Lord and everything evil and wrong is destroyed and everything is only good and righteous. And we're going to look back and think, I don't know, I mean, maybe we won't even remember what it was like. We're going to look back and say, what I'm experiencing now makes anything I experienced before, any hardship, worth it. I mean, Paul even says that in 2 Corinthians, if you turn there. He gives us this, uh, this picture of a future and as followers of God, we're to be living in this relationship between the present and the future. Yes, I'm experiencing hardships now. Yes, I'm experiencing suffering and exile now. But what's coming makes everything here pale in comparison. Not that it's not important. Not that it shouldn't be treated um, not that it shouldn't be treated correctly or with importance. But that in the end, in the long run, so I, I always got to put something in here because I can't, I never remember where the books of the Bible are when I'm up here. There we go. There we go. Second Corinthians 4 verse 14 says this. Knowing that God who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. He says this, because of Jesus' resurrection, because Jesus defeated death and evil already, in verse 16 he says, therefore we do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, despite the fact that you still will experience suffering in a cursed earth because of sin and its insidious power. Despite that fact, Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. It's as if no evil could ever actually befall the people of God. For our light affliction, and Paul can say that because Paul understood affliction quite well. A lot. A lot. And he knows there's something about the power of Christ in his life that means that everything he experienced, the death threats, the beatings, the stonings, the, uh, the continual harassment, standing before Caesar whose life, whose, who, uh, with his hand, uh, with his life in Caesar's hand, standing before all of that for our light affliction, 
which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's coming a day when we look back at the suffering we've experienced and say, well, to have Jesus now makes anything I went through then totally worth it. Totally worth it. Uh, just to end here, I want you to consider this from Psalm 91. Two things, two um, images that the, that the psalmist writes down that I think are very interesting. Back in, uh, uh, back in verse 4, it says this, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. So we have the picture of wings, bird-like wings, and his truth shall be your shield and buckler. Like a mother bird would shield its chicks from the weather, from the elements, from possible death. That's how God is for his people. That doesn't sound like a distant God who has forgotten his people. That sounds like someone who is right next to them, putting out his wings to protect the babies underneath. And then this is interesting too. He says this, his truth shall be your shield and buckler. A shield, you know what that is? A buckler is a shield. So what it sounds like he's saying is, your sh- his truth shall be your shield and shield. Yes, but these are two diff- very different kinds of shields. So in ancient uh, armies, you would have, like Greeks and Romans, you would have these massive shields that covered your body that people would carry, certain people at least in the army would carry, and then you would make a wall of these shields so that everybody behind it was protected. That's the first shield that God is for us. But then in the battle, when things got hairier and the fighting was up close and personal, you might also have a buckler, which is a personal shield, something very small that you wore on your wrist to hopefully ward off blows from the other sword or weapons. And so God is a shield, a massive shield for his people. And he's also a personal shield for his servants. Do you see the imagery is all about being so close to God that you're within arm's length of him at all times? And that's something that an exiled people who were so far away from everything they thought was true, so far away from home, so far away from the place of worship, so far away from what they thought, so far away from God. Do you see why it's so important that Psalm 91 reminds us that there's nowhere you can go as a servant of God that he is not there and he is not with you. And no matter what we go through, the Lord is with us. Verses 14 through 16, just to close this, well, almost close it. You know, I can't just close it there. But uh, the, 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 it changes. The, 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 first half, or the first part of this psalm, verses 1 through 13, was all from the perspective of someone who already actually knows that this is true. Not someone who is in need of this, but someone who's already experienced it. Right? He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the mighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. And look, surely he'll deliver you if, that's, if you say that. Surely all of this and that will happen if you say that. 
And look at verse 9. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, if you make him your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. So we've, li- we've heard from someone who already knows this to be true and has experienced abiding under the shadow of God. But now we get a change in person here and we see God actually speak. God actually speak to his exiled servants. He says this, because he or she, the servant of God, has set his love upon me and set his love upon there, think of it this way, to cling to hold on to, to grab a hold of, and to not let go. That's the idea. Because he has set his love upon me, which it's interesting in other Psalms, sorry, it's a little aside, but God describes his own love for us in that same way, to cling and to hold on and to grab. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. If you're a servant of God, you're assured victory. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. Telling that to someone who uh, has been taken away from their home and wondering where is God in all of this. That's powerful. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. That doesn't mean I'll look on and see his trouble. That means I'll be right next to him in the trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. I mean, can you imagine that? Not just God delivering us. That's hard to think about, (laughs) heavy to think about, wonderful to think about, but can you imagine being honored by God? That's what he says he will do for his servants. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my Salvation. So, what is true? What do you need to trust about Psalm 91? What do you need to obey from Psalm 91? What do you need to do about it? I just want to close by reading Psalm 95 um, because I think it answers both of those things. It tells us what we need to do in light of the fact that no matter what happens to us or around us, whether or not it's our own doing, whether or not it's because of our own sin, the exile was because of Israel's own sin, whether or not that's true, whether or not, um, whatever, whatever the reason, that God has promised to remain faithful to his people. So here's what we need to do because that's true. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is great, the great God, and the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So we need to worship God. (laughs) Uh, How could we do anything else? But kneel before him in worship, thanking him. 
for the fact that he invites us into his secret place and he stands with us. And then we also need to do this. Today, if you will hear his voice, if you hear the truth in Psalm 91 today, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't turn away and say, well, that's not for me or I don't need him or I'm doing just fine. Don't do that. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of the trial in the wilderness when the people of Israel tested God and they tried God through, though they saw his work. Even though they knew what God said was true, they still said, I don't want anything to do with you, Lord. It's not for me. The psalmist implores us not to have the same type of thinking, but to come to him. For 40 years, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. To reject the Lord, to reject his free offer of salvation through Jesus Christ means that you are bringing hardship on yourself in a way that you will have no victory over ultimately, right? We're looking through the future to understand that If I'm a child of God, if I'm a servant of God, then I can say no evil will befall me because ultimately my victory is the Lord's victory. But if you are not a servant of God, if you're not a child of God, if you reject the offer of Christ for your sins, I mean, today you may experience victory. You may feel no pain, but there's coming a day when, like it says in Psalm 91 and And the rest of the book four of Psalms that God is coming to judge the sinful. So don't harden your heart. Don't look away from God, but run to him. Become one of his sheep. And let us, anyone who is a sheep, anyone who is part of God's kingdom already, never, never stop worshiping him and thanking him for what he's done. And let's go forth in the truth of his shield. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the experiences of your people throughout all the ages and those that have been recorded for us in your word, Father. Those who can remind us what is true about you. Father, oftentimes our circumstances would have us believe other than what you say is true. We forget what's true about you so often. Lord, I pray we would never forget your goodness and your mercy, your kindness your closeness to your people. And Lord, despite everything we see around us that is uncontrollable and and feels like it's going in a place that can never come back from, Lord, I thank you that you're still in control, you're still reigning. And Father, you will have the victory. And I thank you that you promise your people the same victory. So Father, be with us now. We pray that we would honor you in everything we think, say, and do this week in your name. Amen.